Amen and amen. What an amazing thing Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. If you would turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5 as we continue our sermon series looking through Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, which we have entitled Revival for Repentance. We all are repentance for revival. I'll get it right someday. Repentance for revival. We have, we desire, we desire for revival. We desire for Lord, for the Lord to take his rightful place first in our hearts and first in our life. We desire for him to, to do incredible things in our midst. We desire for the blind eyes to be opened as we've already heard about. We desire for people to be healed, not just physically, but, but more importantly, spiritually. We desire for for us to find the peace and the joy and the contentment and the life abundantly that he has spoken of. But what we see through Scripture, what we see through Scripture is if we desire those things, it starts with repentance. It starts with us understanding our own sin and us desiring to turn away from that and turn towards him. We are thankful this morning that that message brings with it, yes, a word of warning, but it brings with it a word of hope. Micah chapter 5 tells us how that hope is even possible. And so if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. We're reading all of chapter 5, and so if in the middle of that you need to have a seat, we totally understand that. But let join us together this morning as we look at the word of God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be, the, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads our, in our palaces, then we shall, will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears into pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off the sorcerers from your hand, sorceries from your hand, 
and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out the Ashereth images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, we come to your word. Lord, these things that you have spoken from from a long time ago, words of warning, but also words of hope and words of blessing, words of promise, words worth rejoicing over because we know we have a Savior. Father, I pray this morning that you would remind us of those things, that we would embrace them, that we would desire to tell about them. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? As we have looked through the prophets, we have continued to look at the message of repentance. And the message of repentance, as we have, we have said all along, has two parts. The call to repentance has a word of warning. That we as human beings are walking in a direction away from God. Having told him, I don't need you. I don't love you. I don't want you. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to be my own boss. And we have walked this way. But the problem is, is that the end of this direction is destruction. It's bad things. And the word of warning is stop going that way. But we've also seen that there's a message of hope. This morning, it's good for us to understand both. And so we looked at this slide last week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time this morning. But it is important, and for us to understand the message of hope, we also have to understand that message of warning well. We know through his scripture and through what we've looked at the last few weeks that all of sin is repulsive to God, that he can't even stand to look upon it. It's the reason that as Christ is, Jesus Christ is on the cross, and the, the, the sin of the world is placed upon his shoulders, the wrath of God is poured out him, that he, the Father turns away from the Son for the first time in all of history, to which Jesus proclaims, why have you forsaken me? And it's because God cannot look upon sin. What we also understand is that all of us have participated, all of us, all of us are guilty before the throne of God. Not one of us can proclaim, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. It's, what, it's the meaning when we look in the New Testament especially. We see in Romans, we see it in Galatians and Corinthians and Revelation. These lists of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we see the big things. We see things like murder and theft and, and, and horrible, horrible evils. And we say, yeah, I understand that. But what we also see are things like lying and disobeying parents and jealousy and unforgiveness. And we're reminded that every single one of us has participated and added to the sin of the world. Because of that, all of us are impacted by the consequences. Because we have all participated in sin, all of us have Im impacted by the consequences, meaning that we experience things in this life that are a direct result of sin. We experience disease, we experience um, famine, we experience war, we experience evil at the hands of others, we experience natural disasters, drought, and yes, we experience physical death. The Word of God tells us that these consequences 
are nothing compared to the eternal consequences. We speak much, and rightfully so, as Christians of heaven and the glorious coming of our Lord when one day we will experience perfection in his presence with no more disease, no more tears, no more goodbyes, no more death. And we look forward to that time that will be eternal bliss, but we don't often speak of that just as great, just as blessed as heaven is, so hell is just as horrific, and it is for eternity as well. Scripture stands before us and says, stop going this direction. There is something else. Praise be to God that it is not just a warning, though, that the message of repentance is also hope, that if we will understand our sin and understand the direction we're going, and we will confess that to the Lord, we'll say, yeah, I've messed up. Doing it my way is not best. Father, forgive me. I want to follow you. That in that repentance, there is hope. We've seen it in Jonah. When the people of Nineveh hear the message of warning, they, break, they are broken in their hearts and their spirits. They kneel before the God in, in mourning and they say, Father, God, forgive us. And he does that and he takes away the disaster that was planned for them. We see it in the people of Judah under the king of Hezekiah. They hear the word of warning from Isaiah and from uh, Micah and they turn away from their evil ways and they begin to follow God and he blesses them because of it. He rescues them before it. Last week in Micah chapter 4, we saw these glorious things. We saw our promise for the future that Micah speaks of a day coming when the Lord will return and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth that we will know war no longer, but we will know peace, that we will know contentment, that we'll know all of the blessing of God. We know that there is hope for tomorrow, that it's easy to look for things on the news and for us to get dis discouraged and even um, despondent, but that he is working all things out for our good, that all things are ushering in his return. And we know that there is salvation for today. Jesus tells us that he desires to give us life and life abundantly. That's not just for the future. We get, we get sometimes focused on heaven, and that's a good thing. We should focus on his return. But I think sometimes we forget that he desires to impact our here and now, that he desires to give you joy now, to give you peace now, to give you contentment now, to give you satisfaction now, that your relationships would, be ref would reflect his glory now, not later we have salvation for today. All of these things are wonderful things. And so Micah, in the first three chapters, we have this incredible warning to stop going the direction of sin that leads in destruction. And we're given this incredible picture of hope and of blessing. But in chapter 5, we, we get an answer. You see, when we see those two things, when we see sin and we see its seriousness and we see the consequences and we understand our guilt and we understand the holiness and the righteousness of God and then we turn and we see the grace and the mercy and the love bestowed upon sinners so that they may have a relationship with God there's a tension there I would say there's even a question how is that possible 
How is it possible that a holy, just, righteous God can look at a guilty sinner and say, you are pardoned? How can he look at one and say, you are my child? How can he look at someone and say that is guilty and say, it's all taken care of? The answer, the answer we find in Micah chapter 5, and the answer is Jesus the Christ. It is through him that God is able to do those things. And we see some promises, some, some things that explain who he is and why he can do this. First, we see the promise that he is the one who will be born in Bethlehem. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. You go to Matthew Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew makes this connection for us as, a, as readers of what God is doing and how God has accomplished this through Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, now after Jesus was born, where? In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes from the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem in Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And what follows is a paraphrase of Micah chapter 5. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. What we find here, and Matthew does a great job of this, is there is a, a clear line from the prophecy of Micah about the one who will come to Jesus Christ. Matthew wants to make sure that you have no doubt that Jesus is the one who is fulfilling these prophecies. Micah also says not only is he to be born in Bethlehem, but he is the king. It says more than once that he is the ruler in Israel. Again, going to Matthew, this time in chapter 1, Matthew, throughout his gospel, goes to great lengths for us to understand that Jesus is of the lineage of David. He starts, uh, the whole gospel of Matthew starts with this line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Sometimes we read genealogies like this, and it's so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and we skip over it. We read it very flippantly, but understand that is there for a purpose. It's there that we might understand that this child born in Bethlehem to Mary is rightfully the heir to the throne of David, that he is a completion of the promise that God had made to David that there would be a one who would sit on the throne for all of eternity. And Jesus is rightfully that. And so we rightfully call him King of kings and Lord of lords. He's to be born in Bethlehem. He's the king and he is the shepherd. He's a shepherd. And he shall stand, in verse 4, he shall, in Micah 5, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
It's one thing to say that someone's a king, right? If you say they're a king, there is power, there is respect, okay? There's the ability to wage war, but one can be, one can be a bad king. You can be a harsh king. But Micah makes it clear, yes, he's king. Yes, he is Lord of all, but he is also a good shepherd. Jesus himself identifies with this role in John chapter 10. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus himself identifies his ministry as that of a shepherd of one who calls to his sheep and brings them to himself, who gathers them, who leads them to green pastures, who leads them to calm water. He's the one who heals and binds the wounds. He's the one who protects them from enemies, who goes up against the lions and the wolves that none of the sheep may perish. He is the one, he says, who lays down his life. He lays down his life that they may live. This is the one that Micah is pointing towards. He says there's one coming that's different. He is not only the one born in Bethlehem, the king, the shepherd, but he is the peace. Now, I understand the peace doesn't really work, but it flows with the notes, so just go along with it, okay? The peace, okay? Go to Micah, back to Micah chapter 5, verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Now, Micah, in his day, he's talking to these people who are war-ravaged, right? They are surrounded by the Assyrians. The Babylonians are are a looming threat. There are major problems happening and, and major issues going on, and they're afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their lifestyle, their culture. He says, he will be your peace. And certainly we see in Judah that they are saved, at least for a time. But I believe that Micah, in seeing the Christ and the ministry of Jesus' life, understands that there is much more than physical peace at stake here. We look together, look together at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Going down to verse 6. For, we, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified, meaning we've been taken from guilty to innocent by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We ask the question, okay, how can a holy, just God, a righteous God, look at sinners and say, you are pardoned. I love you. Your sins are forgiven. No matter the darkest thing you've ever done, no matter that thing that you have tucked away in your mind that you pray that no one ever finds out about, no matter how much guilt or shame you carry, God looks at you and says, you are forgiven and you can come into my presence for all of eternity. You can be blessed. You can have life abundantly. How can he say that? He can only say that because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. He took our sin and he placed it on Jesus Christ and Christ laid down his life. He bled for us. He paid our price so that he could stand before each of us as individuals and say, there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is blessing. There is life. That tension between a holy God and a God that loves, that tension is resolved in the cross. That question of how a holy, just God can forgive and pardon sinners and still be holy and just, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in the cross where he paid the penalty for us. Here's the amazing thing to me. This, this is mind-blowing. It, it, should, it should take up our time and our energy and our thought press process to ponder the depths of God's love and grace and mercy towards us. But here's the thing that astounds me even more is that this has always been the answer. He has always been the answer. I think sometimes we're tempted to look at the Old Testament and to divide it from the New Testament and say these are two separate things. There are two separate plans here. But that is simply not the truth. That Jesus Christ has been the plan from the beginning. He was the plan in Genesis. In Genesis, we have Adam and Eve, and they are living in the Garden of Eden, and they choose sin they choose not to trust God. They choose not to put their faith in him. And rather, they choose to do that which he tells them not to. And then they stand. Having done so, they stand before God along with that serpent, the devil. And God speaks to them. And he speaks to the serpent first. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. <clears throat> and I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring, he, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, the plan of God for the redemption of humanity was Jesus Christ. He tells the servant from the very get-go, you think you've won, but you have not. There is one who is coming, and he will be born of a woman. It's interesting that he doesn't say born of a man. He's pointing even in Genesis to the virgin birth. He says there is one born of a woman who is coming, and you will harm him, but he is going to crush you. The battle is over. He is going to crush you. It's the plan from the beginning. God forgave Adam and Eve in the garden that day, not because he slaughtered two animals and made coverings for them. He forgave them that day and allowed them to live because he looked into the future and he saw the cross and he saw Christ and he said, that is enough. It is finished was proclaimed, not on the cross. It was proclaimed in Genesis. It is enough. The answer is in Genesis. It's in the law. Go read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament points back to the law, and it says, we thought it meant this, but the whole time it was pointing us to a Savior. It was pointing us to one who would come. In particular, you read the law, and once a year, the priest would take a lamb and who was perfect and spotless, and they would put their hands upon that, that lamb, and they would proclaim the sins of all the nation on that one lamb, and then it would die and take with it those sins. Brothers and sisters, friends, God did not look at that sacrifice and forgive the people of Israel because they slaughtered a lamb. He looked at that moment. He looked at them and he forgave them because he looked into the future and he saw the cross and the resurrection and he said, it is enough. And he forgave them. It's in the prophets. The prophets speak over and over and over again. From Isaiah to Malachi, over and over again, they point to God's salvation not coming through the sacrifice of animals, but coming through one who was to come, one who would be born in Bethlehem, one who would be king of kings and lord of lords, one would, who would make the blind to see and would heal the lame, one who would be crushed for our iniquities over and over again. He is the answer in the prophets. God did not forgive Israel in that day because they obeyed the law. He forgave them because he looked into the future and saw the cross and the resurrection and said, it is enough. Praise the Lord. He is the answer in the New Testament and he is the answer for today. He is the answer in the New Testament. John the Baptist proclaims in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus walks on the scene and he begins immediately to point to Jesus and say, that's him. That's the answer. He says, I'm not worthy to undo the strap of his sandal. That's him. And he proclaims, if you will believe in him, then you will find forgiveness. You will find the kingdom of God. But if you reject him, just know that you are under the wrath. He is the answer in the New Testament. 
And he is the answer for today. We stand 2,000 years on the other side of the resurrection. And God does not forgive us because we come to church. He does not forgive us because we are good. He does not forgive us because we lift up prayers to him. He forgives us because when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and choose to make him Lord of our life, he looks upon us and he looks back at the cross and he looks back at the resurrection and he says, it is enough. It is finished. And he embraces us along with Abraham and Jacob And he embraces us with Moses. He embraces us along with David and the prophets. He calls us close and he says, you are mine. The answer for why a holy God can do that to us as sinners is because of Jesus Christ. He has always been the answer. The question is though, will you accept that answer? Will you accept that answer? Raising a toddler, I have learned that we don't always accept the answers we're given. I know that astounds you, but raising a toddler, I'm, I'm thankful for this age where they ask questions and, and, and they want to know why and all this stuff. That's good. I want, I want her to learn. But there are times when a question is asked and a response is given. Dad, what are we doing tomorrow? Well, you're going to do a little school. I'm going to go to work. I don't want to do that. Well, tough beans. Dad, what are we having for supper? We're having lasagna and green beans. Tough luck, kiddo. That's what we're having. You like lasagna, by the way. You've always liked lasagna. Eat the lasagna, okay? But we don't accept the answer. And I hate to tell you, but we as adults do the same thing. We ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Change jobs. Uh, never mind. We ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Go share with that person. Go tell them about Christ. Mm, no, thank you. We ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Why am I experiencing difficulty? Why does it feel like my prayers are hitting the, hitting the ceiling? Go forgive that person. Uh, nope. Never mind. Sorry, I ask. We ask questions of God all the time, and yet when we get the answer, and so often it doesn't have to be God speaking in a little small, tiny voice. It's already in his word. But we get the answer, we see it, and we go, hmm, sorry I ask. Sadly, there are many people, many people who ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And they're told that the answer is Jesus Christ, and they say, no, thank you. We're reminded of the account in the Gospels of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he asks him, he says, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And the Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing this account, obviously, but Jesus responds and says, well, obey the law. Obey all of the words of Moses. And the rich young ruler says, done. Already done it. I I have been as good as I possibly can be. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't challenge him on that. Jesus knows all things. Jesus is God. Jesus could have looked at him and go, hey, you remember on December 4th of, you know, 43 BC, you said this word. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus just lets it go. Instead, Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. Jesus says, okay, this is what you lack. Take all that you have and sell it. 
and come follow me and you'll be saved. What does it say in the scripture? It says the rich young ruler went away sad. He asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, get rid of everything, come follow me. And he says, no thanks. Why? Is it because selling his possessions would have saved him? No. It's because Jesus says this, you put me first. You love me first. That's salvation. You follow me. That's salvation. And Jesus knew for this young man, he had put all of his faith, he had put all of his trust, he had put all of everything in his possessions and in his money. His salvation in that moment came not from Christ. It came not from doing the law. His salvation came from being rich. He thought he could handle anything if he had this. Jesus says, let that go. Come follow me. Come follow me. And the rich young ruler, this young man, looks at him and says, can't do it. Friend, the question to you this morning, we know the warning If we continue to sin, there is destruction. There is literally hell at the end of that path. And we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, Jesus, will you accept that answer? Will you confess your sin? Will you confess your sin? Will you admit that I'm going the wrong direction? I am trusting in things other than Jesus Christ. Will you admit that you have tried to do it your own way and it is wrong? God, forgive me. Forgive me. I don't want to go this way anymore. Will you commit your life? Will you commit your life? We're told in the word that it's one thing to believe in Christ. It's another thing to follow him. Jesus does not want just believers. The demons believe in Shudder. He wants followers. He wants disciples. People who live their life in obedience to him. Are you willing to do that? Are you doing that? And then the lastly, and I, again, couldn't come up with a C word, so it doesn't quite fit, but will you expose your heart? It's interesting, here at the end of Micah chapter 5, we get in verse 7 through verse 9, it talks about the God overcoming the adversaries of Israel and Judah, that they're going to be saved, that they're going to have victory. And then immediately following that, in chapter 10, we get kind of an odd passage. In chapter 10, he says, And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. I will cut off the sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. I will cut off your carved images and the pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out the Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. That doesn't sound like salvation. It doesn't sound real hopeful. Why? In this, in this chapter of hope, in this chapter of blessing, where we see the Messiah, why is this passage about things being torn down and destroyed there? It's because of this. The best thing for you is him. Your salvation is in him alone. And he will do whatever it takes to get you closer to him. 
He says, look, you're trusting in chariots. I'm going to remove that. You're trusting in strong cities. I'm going to remove that. You're trusting in sorcerers and fortune tellers. Gone. You're trusting in idols that you have made with your own hands. I'm going to burn them to the ground. It's done. Because what you need is not that. What you need is me. I am always the answer. Brothers and sisters, when you come to him, are you willing to expose your heart and say, remove whatever you want. Remove whatever you want because all I need is you. But understand, that's going to be hard. Believe Believer, if you're here this morning and you've checked out because you think this is a message just for lost people, I need you to come back for just a minute. Because God is not done with you. He is desiring to make you look more like Christ, that you may experience more of that life abundantly, that you may grow closer to him, that you may rely on him more, that you may know what life is. And in that process, he's going to remove things. Maybe it's, maybe it's a particular sin. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's unforgiveness. He's like, that can't be there if you're going to draw closer to me. Maybe it's an idol. Maybe you, yes, have, have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You said, I'm going to follow him, but you've allowed something else to creep back in. And now something else is more of a passion than he is. Maybe it's school, maybe it's work, maybe it's your reputation, maybe it's your family. This is a hard one. And so I want you to listen to me really closely because this is one of those things that like gets taken out of context and then ends up on Facebook and it's like Brian hates families. Uh, Stop, okay? So I need you to listen really closely. Jesus Christ says what? He says, you cannot follow me. You're not fit to follow me if you don't hate your mom and dad. Now, does he really mean you got to hate mom and dad? No. The point is this. you got to love me more. And then trust me, the family thing's going to work out. You love me more and see if I don't give you more love for mom and dad. You love me more and see if I don't give you love, more love for your kids. You love me more and see if they don't turn out better. Don't, but don't put them first. Now, that is hard. I'm telling you, that is hard. I didn't understand the full extent of that until Rosemary come along. It's hard not to put our kids before everything because we want what's best for them. We think we know what's best for them. And the Lord goes, yeah, like that turned out well for you. He says, no, put me first and trust me, your kids are going to be just fine. You put me first and trust me, I'm going to love them well. But we can make them an idol. Maybe we need to take a break, reevaluate some things. Maybe, just maybe, we need to repent and say, he comes first. He comes first. But will you accept that answer? Believer, if you're here, will you accept that answer? When we say, how do I draw closer to God? How do I experience his power? How do I have life abundantly? Will you accept the answer, repent? Friend, if you're here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe you've gone to church your whole life, maybe you tried to be a good person, maybe you even pray from time to time, but you know, I don't really follow him. I don't let him be the boss. 
Will you accept the answer that salvation only comes through repentance, that it only comes through him this morning? Will you come to him and confess your sins and commit to follow him? I promise you if you do, there are good things. There is life and life abundantly. There is joy. There is hope. There are things that this world can only dream of. It is why we sing. It is why we look forward to things to come. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're going to have a time of response. We're going to have a time of response. We think it's important here that if we hear a word from the Lord, that we would take time this morning to respond to him. Maybe that means that you need to stand and to sing with us, to sing and rejoice of that, that God has given this amazing gift. Maybe you need to pray in your seat and say, Father, forgive me. I want to follow you. Maybe you need to go grab somebody else and say, I need you to pray with me, or I need you to forgive me, or I need to forgive you even. Maybe you need to come to the altar. There's nothing special about this place. But there is something symbolic about us coming forward and getting on our knees and saying, Lord, it is yours. It's yours. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Father, you have given us the answer. The answer to life. The answer to salvation. The answer to to the future, the answer for right now, it is you. It's always been you. Father, I pray that we would embrace that. Father, I pray that you would forgive me when I have not. Lord, when I've put other things before you. Father, forgive me when I've, I've thought I knew better. Father, help us grab hold of you and never let go. Father, I pray that you would work in this room right now, that you would not allow us to be caught up in what others will think about us, that you would not allow us to be caught up in, in what is our norm, but that we would be caught up in you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.